Love you. Mill City Church, 10 years and 51 weeks ago, my wife Lisa and I walked in this room for the first time, for the first service of this church. And to see what God has done here in 11 years next week is unbelievable. The Spirit of the Lord taking over Fort Collins in fresh ways, to see people rise up into the image of Jesus, disciples being made, people being called out of darkness and into marvelous light. What a miracle. Can we thank God for 11 years? And let me also, before I get started, just thank Aaron and Jossie because Aaron was my boss. And you want to talk about a dream boss. Work for Aaron Stern. And Aaron and Jossie, uh, Lisa and I came to New Life 18 years ago in Colorado Springs and started working with them and serving with them and raising children together. We were at their kids' dedications. We've celebrated the highest highs. We've been to funerals together and wept bitter tears. And I've seen these people lead through crisis and serve. And, and I'll just tell you, it's not like this everywhere you go. Can we honor two incredible pastors, Aaron and Jossie Stern? I bless you. What we're going to do today is I'll read the text. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the very first page in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. What I'll do is I'll read this text, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump in. So hear the word of the Lord out of Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea. Now flag how physical this language is, how creational, how creaturely this language is. God makes us in his image so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish in the sea. Here it is again, the creational creaturely language. And the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We did not get out of bed this morning and drive to this place to be entertained. We did not come here because we're bored. We did not come here for any other reason except we believe that you are the God who speaks. And when you speak, you put the world right. And God said, let there be light, and there was. And today we carry in darkness. Today we carry in fear. Today we carry in questions. And we need you to say, let there be light. So Lord, do it all over again. We pray today, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Six years ago, my grandma Wheezy called me from Idaho. Grandma Louise Wheezy Wilson. She just turned 91 last week, and she said, Daniel, it's about time. Grandpa's about to enter his rest. Grandpa Dan Wilson, who I'm named after, I'm Daniel Wilson Grothy, named after my grandpa, and so it's my guy. So all the family got called. We all raced out to Idaho, and we camped on their land. They live on the Snake River right there in Idaho on land that Grandma Wheezy's daddy bought in the 1900, early 1900s. 
We can't, we, we, we get there, and Grandpa Dan calls me back into his room, and Grandma Wheezy's there, and he said, Daniel, I'm ready to meet Jesus, but there's one thing. He said, there's one thing I haven't done, and I, I, I'm at peace, I, but I've never been baptized. Would you baptize me? 86 years old. And I said, Grandpa Dan, I'd be honored. I start crying, and he starts crying, and Grandma Weezy's crying. All 50 of us, 28 great-grandchildren, every single family member was in the room. We gathered with the Snake River in the background, a bald eagle flying by, and Grandpa Dan's there in his, what would become his deathbed. And I get out a bowl of water, and I wash his feet, and I wipe his feet, and I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I pour water on his head. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I dry his head. And he closes his eyes and he says, there is no more fear. Days later, he's in the presence of Jesus. They asked me to officiate the funeral, which I was honored to do in this small town, Lapway, Idaho, 500 people on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation. And the entire town showed up because Dan and Wheezy Wilson had lived there for 86 years. And they'd served, and they'd loved, and they'd honored, and they'd take care of people. People were on the brink with their mortgages. They would quietly pay the mortgage. And about 40% of these people followed Jesus, but 100% of the town was there because they said, you know what? That's a man of God. And we honor his faithfulness here. We honor his life here. 86 years in one place. And what I saw that day at Grandpa Dan's funeral was the power of stability in place. What I did not know until seminary about 15 years ago was that the saints, they took a particular vow first. Now, I would have known, I'm a pastor's kid, I knew that they would have taken vows of obedience to Scripture. I knew that they would have taken vows of charity with their money. I knew that they would have taken vows of chastity with their sexuality, that your body's not your own. Honor God with your body. Be clean. But what I did not know until seminary 15 years ago was that the very first vow the saints of old would take was the vow of stability in place. Find your people. Find your place. Put down roots and try to die there. That's what all the saints would sign up for first. That's the first vow. And then charity and chastity and obedience because they wanted us to know that being planted in a place is where you will bear fruit. You'll be like trees planted by streams of living water. And trees don't bounce around, right? The vow of stability in place. So today I want to say three things about the ancient vow of stability as you're thinking about these practices of community and living lives of faithfulness to Jesus. Three things I want to say to you about the vow of stability in place. The very first thing is that through the vow of stability, God wants to give us a gift. Can you say gift? Through the vow of stability, God wants to give us a gift. You turn the page to Genesis chapter 2 and you see that the very first gift God gives humankind is the gift of place. Notice, what does he give them? Hey, Adam and Eve, here's a garden. Here's Eden. Rule over the fish in the sea. I've made you in my image. You're created as creator, so go superintend the garden and have a blast. And there's the trees, and there's the herbs, and there's the flowers, and there's the vegetables, and there's this little creek that runs over there. Have a blast, Adam and Eve. The very first gift God gives humankind is the gift of place. Notice, you turn to Genesis chapter 3, the very first curse after the fall is the curse of placelessness. 
driven out of the garden. We take the story into our own hands and say, we'll be God. We've got this from here. And what happens is sin comes in and chaos with it. And Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. The the angels on the eastern boundary with that flaming sword, right? Like you understand the first gift is place and the first curse is placelessness. And this is why we walk our city streets and our hearts break when we see people who don't have the gift of stability in a home. The heartbreak of placelessness. But I want to drill down just a little bit deeper and ask the question, what does place do for us? If God gives us the gift, like what's the benefit of place? I'll say three things about that. First, place gives us security. Long before Abraham Maslow put together his triangular hierarchy of needs in 1943, if you've been to a psychology class, you've looked at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Long before he put that together, sages and philosophers and anthropologists and theologians down through the ages have been saying, place is crucial in the great quest of becoming. Safety, security, this little baby right over here, just days old, right? At the end of the day, they're going to lay this beautiful little baby in the crib tonight. And somewhere subconsciously, this baby's going to go, I'm safe. I'm loved. Someone's for me. The world is good. There's really good food. It's okay. We're going to be fine. Like, if you, place gives us security. And as, as, as human beings, if you're going to flourish in the world, you've got to start with the security of place. Place gives us security. Place, the second thing, though, it gives us an identity. Think about Steph and Seth Curry. Growing up as the son of Del Curry, who played 16 years in the NBA, and they thought every five-year-old was in the gym, and they thought every seven-year-old was watching film, and they thought every 10-year-old was lifting, and they thought these boys didn't know anything different. They, they, They accrued an identity growing up in the place that they grew up in. They're ballers. Why? Because the place they grew up in gave them security, but it also marked them with an identity. But place, you click down one layer deeper, and what happens is place also gives us the gift of practicing mastery, mastery at our craft. And I grew up as a pastor's kid. I'm 40 years old, and, and uh, the church I went to, my pastor would call me up, and, and um, he'd say to me in the middle of service, like at the offering time, he'd go, Brother Daniel, in Oklahoma, everyone's brother, you know, Brother Daniel, you got a word from God that you want to share? And I'm thinking, no, I don't. I'm 10. Leave me alone. I'm at church. <laughs> Shut up. And he'd go, why don't you come up here, Brother Daniel? And, and he'd hand me the microphone in front of a couple thousand people, and he'd say, why don't you encourage the people out of the word of God? I'll just tell you, you only come unprepared to that church one time. <laughs> Next week, I showed up. I had little notes in my pocket, you know. Daniel, could you say? I couldn't possibly. You know, hear ye the word of the Lord. At our church, like my pastor, and and he encouraged me. He pulled me aside afterwards. He said, great job here, great job here. Hey, next time, maybe you ought to think about. And then the next week, he'd call me up, and he'd give me an opportunity. He gave me my first sermon when I was 13 years old. And that place gave me security. It gave me an identity, but it also gave me the chance to practice my mastery. And what you see as you you study Christian scripture and, and the history of the church, that through the vow of stability, God wants to give us a gift. The second thing is through the vow of stability, God wants to make us holy. Can you say holy today? Through the vow of stability, God wants 
to make us holy. I'll just tell you, I'm a pretty great Christian by myself. You give me a prayer closet and a Bible and a cup of coffee and you put on some Mill City worship in the background and you just say, come Holy Spirit. And I, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And he will not let your foot slip. And he who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, the Lord who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And the, I, I, I'm a great Christian when I'm in the prayer closet by myself. And it's just all these people. You walk out of the prayer closet, you get in the car, and you drive to work, and someone cuts you off and gives you the middle finger, and you all of a sudden, 30 minutes ago, you were saying, come Holy Spirit, and now you've got veins popping out of your neck. <laughs> I'm a musician. Uh, my dad was a worship pastor at our church all growing up, so I've been playing drums my whole life and recorded on a bunch of albums, and we, we did a bunch of touring, and we'd play stadiums, and, and, and the band had what's called a writer. I don't know if you know what a writer is, but a writer is you write down everything you want, and you send it ahead to the venue, and you show up, and magically it's there. And they pick you up on the curb at the airport and put you in a bus or a 15-passenger and take you to the hotel, and then they take you to the venue, and they take you back to the green room, and everything you ask for is there, and, and people are, you know, how can we help you, Daniel? What do you need? Do you need a double shot, you know, espresso? And they're running around. And I realized after years of being in green rooms that I was getting everyone's best 60 seconds of their day. We are so thrilled you're here. Bless you. And we receive you with joy. And whatever you need, you just tell us we are here to serve every cater to your need. And I realized that I would fly home and I was not getting the best 60 seconds of my children's day. I was getting the best diaper of their day, you know. I, my wife would look when I would come home. She'd go, welcome, you know, have a blast, right? And, and, and I would go out on the road and I realized this is not good for me because I, I'm tempted to think that I can create a world that revolves around my desires. But you know who on the planet Earth, the four people who have made me a disciple of Jesus? Lisa Carol Grothy and Lillian Carol Grothy and Wilson James Grothy, and Wakely Daniel Grothy. You know the fruit of the Spirit? Think about this. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit does not develop in isolation. Love. What's love for? To give it away to other people. Joy. To be in a room of people where it could be fractured and difficult, and, and you're, you're helping people laugh. The joy of the Lord and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit develops in community. And when you, when you stay planted in that community, fruit starts, starts to pop off of your life. And other people can taste and see that the Lord is good. Through the vow of stability, God wants to make us holy. We've got a couple cultural trends at play, though, that keep us moving, that keep us uh, unfaithful to our place, that keep us living in instability. And I want to put a couple of those things in front of you today, a couple cultural trends at play that keep us from signing up for the vow of stability in place. The first is we live in an age of wanderlust. This is what social media is built on, making you 
ungrateful for the gift that God has given you, the actual life that God has given you, what happens is in this age of wanderlust is you open up those apps and you see everyone's highlight reel. And it seems like everyone is just beautiful all the time and everyone is skinny and everyone looks so good and they're happy and they're always eating sushi on Greek islands and, and they're flying around to their, you know, and everyone just, and, and what happens is the enemy goes, you are so small. And you are so boring, and your life is so simple and so plain, and God has actually given us the gift of stability, but we look in this age of wanderlust, and what the, the message is, you need to actually transcend your place. You need to live above your place. You need to fly around. You need to leave your place to go be happy. And if you just had homes across the globe like all of these celebrities, then you would be happy. I think it was Jim Carrey who said, I wish that all of you could be rich and famous. And do everything you ever wanted so that you could see it's not the answer. Jim, who's making $25 million a movie, and he's done everything he could ever want. And he gets to the top of the mountain, and he discovers it's lonely, and he crashes into despair. And actually, Jim would say, you've got to root back down into the particularities of your life. Through the vow of stability, God will make us holy. But we live in an age of wanderlust that wants us to run away from our actual lives. And we have to ask ourselves, how is it working out for us? We live in an age of wanderlust. But the second thing is, we have become pathologically conflict avoidant. My grandpa Dan, who was a farmer for his whole life that I got to officiate his funeral, small community. And if he was frustrated with someone, you know what he would do? He would call them on Saturday and say, hey, can you meet me at the Greasy Spoon Diner on the corner of First and Main on Monday at 7 a.m.? We got to talk. And he'd show up on Monday at 7 a.m., and there would be the guy, and they'd sit down in one of those little booths over a bad cup of black coffee, and he would say, you and I agreed on the price of hay last year, and you just changed it on me without any announcement. What's the deal? I thought, did we shake hands? I have the number right, correct? Yes, you have the number right. Well, my grandpa Dan would say, I want to show up at your funeral 50 years from now, and I want to thank God for you, and I want to honor your memory, and I want to be friends for 50 years. The way you're acting right now isn't making that possible, and so stop that. (laughs) You told me this price. I want to know that when I shake your hand and look you in the eyes, that your word is your bond, that I can trust you. And I want you to know that you can trust me. Are we good? And the guy would say, you're absolutely right, Mr. Wilson. Yet the price stands, and I'm sorry about that. And they'd shake hands. Grandpa Dan would buy breakfast, and they'd get up and hug it out. And they would show up at each other's funerals 50 years later as friends. We... In this moment that we live in now, we unfollow and we unfriend and we ghost and we cancel and we bolt. And have you ever worked in a place with the same people? Sometimes you can't get away from them physically, like they're in the same place. So you just find a new route to walk, you know, (laughs) avoid their cubicle and don't make eye contact and la, 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 la. And we think that if we just avoid that, but wherever you go, there you are. And in this age of conflict avoidance, We are keeping ourselves perpetually immature. And Jesus says, if you got beef with someone, go to them. Talk to them. 
Pray with them. If that doesn't work, take someone from the church. Like, bring people together. Constantly run back to each other. Friends, we live in an age that has become pathologically conflict avoidant, and I think we have deeper pockets than we've ever had, but we're more relationally bankrupt than we've ever been. And we can do better. Through the vow of stability, God wants to make us holy. There's a, a monastery not far from here that I go to once a year at the beginning of the year to spend a couple days of praying and fasting and reflecting and dreaming and just getting my head together at the start of the year. Lord, what do you want to do this year? And there's these nuns, about 40 of them, that have, some of them are 86, 87. They've been in that place, the convent, for 50 years. And they've taken vows of stability and vows of chastity and vows of celibacy. And these women are just saints. And up on the wall, you share all your meals together. Up on the wall, there's this paragraph that I've copied that I want to show you here today. At this convent, it says this up on the wall, and I think it's instructive to us. It says, we vow to remain all our life with our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself. And the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when, not if, and when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and to restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behaviors, giving up one's preferences, and forgiving. In our age of wanderlust, In our age of pathological conflict avoidance, the people of God sign up for the vow of stability. And through that vow, God gives us a gift. But through that vow, God makes us holy. And we learn to repent. And we learn to forgive. And we learn to turn the other cheek. And we show up 50 years later at each other's funerals and we say, that was a woman of God. And we bless her memory. That was a man of God. Friends, today, if you want to become holy, remember that people are the great purifiers. Through the vow of stability, through this community, as you stay with your community groups, your life groups, and as you stay worshiping with these people, as you continue to bless each other and forgive each other and dedicate each other's children and bury each other's parents, you look up after the decades and you go, somehow, some way, God made us a holy people. Through the vow of stability, God wants to make us holy. The third thing, the final Note, and I'll tell you a story and we'll pray. Through the vow of stability, God wants to use us to refamily the world. Can you say refamily? God wants to use us to refamily the world. My dad grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's 67 now, six foot six, full head of gray hair. I'm six one and bald. I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> Just a stately man of God. He's been a pastor for 45 years. He's my favorite. Dad grew up in Tulsa, and at five years old, he grew up in a home where it was combative. His dad, Melvin Joseph Grothy, was in the military and was in Berlin on the day the war ended. He helped raise the flag. He was there right in the big middle of it, serving his nation, honorable man, got out of the military, came back to Oklahoma, and was drilling oil wells, just salt of the earth, hands like sandpaper, hard-working brother. 
Mel, uh, Velma Ida, my grandmother Grothy, stately, five foot eleven, elegant woman, just great servant. She served in the, in the Women's Army Corps, and she was in the Pentagon in Washington D.C., receiving messages from the war front, translating them, giving them to the generals. The generals would weigh in and say, "This is what we think you should do." And she was the in between, sending those messages. An amazing woman, on her own, on his own. Excellent people. They did not know how to be married. And so they fought. And they fought. And they fought. And at five years old, my dad said someone would say something at the dinner table. He's the only child. And someone would turn over the kitchen table. And now forks and knives are being used as weapons. And they're burning each other with hot irons. And five-year-old David Grothy is diving on the pile, trying to separate his parents, shouting, Can't we just work this out? His dad slept in his own room. His mom slept in her own room. And little David Grothy at five went to bed in his own room. And he said, I cried myself to sleep every night. And I would say to the ceiling, all I want is a happy family one day. Nine years old. He, he's living in this. It's just normal. Nine years old. One Sunday morning, he got up and he did something courageous. He'd heard about friends at school who on Sundays went to a building called a church. So Dave Grothy got dressed on Sunday morning by himself. His parents never took him to church, but they didn't stop him. At nine, he walked a couple miles across Tulsa, Oklahoma, and walked into the back of a church that's about this size. And he's standing at the back, and the worship leader, the Cali of the church, he is finishing up the, the pre-service band rehearsal and sees a little nine-year-old boy by himself and stops the band. Hey, young man, come here. Come here. My dad comes down to the front of the stage, and, and the guy says, hey, what's your name? And he said, David Grothy? And he said, who, who are you here with? And he said, me? And he said, oh, young man, we are so glad you're here today at Sheridan Christian Center. My wife, LaVon, and I, we sit right here, Vep Ellis and LaVon Ellis, we sit right here, but come up on stage. We're going to finish rehearsal, and then we'll go back here. We've got a little breakfast. We'll give you something, and you sit with us, and we'll drive you home after church. That was in a day in America when you could do that. <laughs> and God, give us that back. We've lost something. And sure enough, David Grothy, church, Vep and LaVon, take him out, get him a burger afterwards, drop him off at home, and they say, we'll pick you up tonight for choir rehearsal because Easter's coming. We've got a kid's choir for Easter. Would you like to be in that? Nine-year-old David said, I would love to be in that. They picked him up that evening for choir rehearsal. And just like that, nine-year-old David Grothy is swept up into Sheridan Christian Center. These people love him. His parents don't go to church. They start picking him up, and there's this man here, and there's that man there, and this woman here who's his Sunday school teacher, and this community gathers around a little nine-year-old boy who's lonely in Tulsa, Oklahoma. When he goes back home, it's, it's horrendous, but when he comes into the presence of God with the people of God, there's hope for the future. At 15 years old, his dad called Grandpa Melvin Joseph Grothy, and he said, uh, David, I'm, I'm going to be working late tonight. We're drilling a new well. Tell your mom you guys have dinner without me. Love you. Two hours later, they go to the front door, and there's a police officer and a chaplain. Is this the Grothy home? Yes. Can we come in? Would you please sit down? Tonight, nine men were drilling a new well, and there was an unexpected explosion, and all nine men died including your husband and your father. We are so sorry. 30 minutes later, 
Vep and Levon Ellis are at the front door. And they said, David, we're so... He's 15. David, we are so sorry. And even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil, for God is with you, and so are we. And his rod and his staff, they'll comfort you, and he'll prepare to... Vep and Levon hug my 15-year-old dad, and losing the most important man in his life. In a tragic, he was decapitated. It was brutal. They hugged my dad, and they said, we'll walk with you. 19 years old. My grandma Grothy calls my dad, and she says, David, I have this terrible headache. Could, could you get over here, and I think I need to go to the hospital. So dad races from Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, goes across town, picks up his mom, takes her to the hospital. They run a battery of tests, and they say, Mrs. Grothy, you have a stage four brain tumor, and you're weeks away from dying. You need to go home and get your affairs in order. My 19-year-old dad drives his mom home, and weeks later, he buries her. He's a 19-year-old orphan. You know who's at the front door? Vep and Levon Ellis, and Frank Reeder, and this person from the church, and Miss Bush from the church, and they circle him up four years after losing his dad, and they say, even though you walk through the valley of shadow of death, you will fear no evil, for God is with you, and so are we. David, we will walk with you. They helped him settle the estate. They helped him sell the home. They said, 19-year-olds don't, don't know how to settle estates. We'll do that for you. David, we have you. He met them as a nine-year-old boy, and now at 19, 10 years later, they buried both of his parents with them. And at 22, when my dad falls in love with my mother, you know who stood on that stage and officiated the wedding? Vep and Levon Ellis. Friends, that nine-year-old boy showed up in absolute crisis. And 13 years later, these people are celebrating with him, and they'd walked with him through many seasons of difficulty. And now in the greatest moment of his life, this church family gathered around my dad and saved his life. You want to know, you, some of you are like, man, Daniel really believes in the church. Yes, because I wouldn't exist if the church wasn't real. <laughs> Friends, this stuff matters. Through the vow of stability, God wants to use us to refamily the world. In his family of origin, my dad's life was breaking down, but the family of God took him in. And today at 67, my dad has 14 grandchildren. He's been married to my mom for 45 years. And he lays in bed at night going, God, thank you for giving me that happy family. The psalmist said in Psalm 68, and I'm getting ready to close. The psalmist was asked one day, I imagine, out in the streets, who is God? Like, what's God like? Give me a soundbite. If you could summarize who God is. And the psalmist says this. He is a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of widows. This is who God is in his holy dwelling. And God sets the lonely into families. Eugene Peterson, who Aaron and I were honored to be discipled by. At the end of his life, I was sitting with him. And I said, Eugene, you've been pastoring for 50 years. You're getting ready to enter your rest. Tell me one more time, what is the church? What's the church, Eugene? Boil it down. Give me a sign. Like, tell me the essence of the people of God. And Eugene said, the church is a colony of heaven in the country of death. A colony, a little pocket of God's glory where peace and shalom break into the world, where people open their hearts and open their pocketbooks and take in people like little nine-year-old boys who are not their biological bloodline, but they go, hey, there's a lonely one, and God sets the lonely into families. David Grothy, get up here. You're ours now. 
Mill City Church. This is who you have been for 11 years next week. You've been a community gathered around the love of Jesus, gathered around the word of God, opening your hearts to the poor, taking care of the needy, refamilying those who are lonely. You have done this for 11 years, and today I'm saying sign back up. Commit to the vow of stability. Through the vow of stability, God will give you a gift, security, identity, mastery. Through the vow of stability, God will make you holy. And when it gets difficult, I beg you, don't run. Please don't bolt. You will prolong your adolescence. Right now, press into it. When it's difficult, you press in. You have the conversation. You turn the other cheek. You go the extra mile. You forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Through that vow, God will make you holy. But it's for a purpose. Because through the vow of stability, God will use you to refamily the world. And I beg you, as one whose life has been marked by the gift of church, when you live this way, when you sign up to be this people, it's not just for you. It's for those who are heartbroken who need a family. It's for those who are afraid who need a family. It's for the single parents among us who need a family. It's for the elderly who are aging and wondering, will they die with anyone who loves them and knows them? They'll be set into this family. Friends, sign up for the vow of stability because when you do, God will use you to refamily the world. Can you say amen today, church? I want you to quiet your hearts, close your eyes, and I want to pray blessing over you today. This is in your identity. This is in your spiritual DNA. This is who you are as a church. I'm asking the Lord right now for a fresh outpouring of the life of the family of God to be released here. Lord, I pray that you would send more lonely people to Mill City Church. I pray that you would send more heartbroken people to Mill City Church and restore them here. I pray that you would give my friends, my brothers and sisters here, eyes to see the people in the room who need to be loved. I pray that you would send them into their work Monday through Friday to go be the missionaries, the carriers of this story, to go take family to the, the people out there. Lord, I pray over this congregation, bless them and keep them and make your face shine upon them, be gracious to them. Lord, lift your countenance upon Mill City Church and grant them peace, we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. amen.